Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Critical Transit, the long-awaited episode. Apologize for the delay, but today I got an exciting, super long show. I'm going to be talking about some lessons from my visit to Pittsburgh and use of transit over there. I uh, got a bunch of news related to transit and transportation, and I have a whole bunch of listener feedback to catch up on. back to the show. Uh, I am in Minneapolis and it is it is very, very hot and disgusting here. Um, and uh, it's been a little crazy uh, moving and all that. So uh, that's why there hasn't been a show for a couple of weeks. Um, but I'm happy to be back and uh, I'm looking to uh, do this weekly is the, is the goal. So uh, stay tuned. I'll, I'll be working towards that. Um, I got a couple, little bit of traveling coming up. Um, I was just in Pittsburgh recently. So that's going to be the focus of today's show. And uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be headed off to Denver and Boulder, Colorado. And uh, I'm trying to see if I can stop in a city or two on the way back uh, to Minneapolis from Denver, which is about, it's about two eight-hour bus rides. Uh, so I'm going to see if I can make a stop on the way back. It's going to depend on a bunch of things. So we'll see. Anyway, thanks for sticking with me for all this uh through all this struggle, and uh, there's there's been a lot in the news lately that I, I wanted to get to. Um, it's kind of two, I think, two big themes in the in the news in, in related to transit in the past uh, past couple of months or, or, or even more, but especially in the past few weeks. Uh, one of them is uh, the increasing occurrence of transit strikes. Now, I uh, I was commenting on on Twitter recently, and I was saying that these transit strikes are going to keep happening and going to be happening more often if uh, employers don't start treating their employees better. And uh, and I wasn't just, you know, pulling that out of, out of thin air. Um, this is something that's been going on with increasing frequency. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, St. Louis employees have actually gone on a strike, but they've been talking about it. Um, Halifax just had a strike that lasted for like two months. Uh, York Region, Ontario, it's something similar. York Region is, is actually next to Toronto, and it has a lot of bus routes into Toronto, and it, so it runs. It's a very it's a very urban service. Um, and there are you know many others that have had strikes recently or. Um, you know, may have strikes soon. And and across, you know, all over the country and, and all over the Western world, really, um, thousands and probably even millions of public servants are working without contracts right now um, because the officials and managers and the political appointees uh, are just refusing to negotiate in, in many cases. Um, the BART strike in uh, San Francisco, which just happened um, and it was just, just ended after five days, they they had to actually strike to get management to come back to the table. They haven't actually resolved anything. They were gone for five days, lost five days' pay. They haven't even resolved anything. Oh, management, oh, okay, we'll sit down again. Oh, what happens if this doesn't work? You're going to go on strike again? I mean, it doesn't – things are so bad in transit that – that and in all the public sector, really, that and, and the private sector, of course, that – Employees have put up with uh, declining wages in the form of, you know, wage freezes, um, all kinds of other horrible stuff, which I'll talk about in a minute. And and they, you know, then they're they don't even go on strike. Right? Usually they'll work uh, work through the con through the no contract period, and you know, um, and then you know, and then they, uh, you know, the only recourse they have is to is to sort of go on strike. And, and the politicians usually don't care. You know, they're not the ones that are using transit. They usually don't care that much. And uh, and if they do care, then, you know, because the public 
sentiment forces them to care, then all they'll do is they'll just, uh, you know, pass a law making it illegal to go, go on strike. Well, strike is not something that people just, you know, the union just like kind of comes up with just, oh, let's see what we can do. See if we can uh, fuck up the region for a day. No, I mean, strike is pretty serious. Strike is, is when management is not addressing your needs. Um, the strike is when, you know, you've, you've done your best to, to negotiate in good faith, to try to explain the things that, that are bothering you. Um, you know, to say that you have, you know, you have safety concerns or, you know, there are, there are issues where you're, you're being worked too hard or you're not being compensated properly or your health insurance is, is lousy or it's something that when, when the, not just, not just one of those problems, but usually multiple problems. And when the employer is not taking it seriously, that's when you say, okay, I'm not, we're not going to let your business or your service or whatever continue without you addressing these concerns that we have. Um, and transit services are being degraded everywhere because these politically motivated attacks on employees are, are only getting stronger. Uh, this is austerity, in, and I focus on America, but, I mean, this is going on all over the Western world. Um, austerity is being implemented where basically these center-right politicians, uh, Democrats, I'm talking to you, have been buying into this idea that all the problems come from paying workers too much, that we need to just cut, cut, cut. We need to cut the budgets. We need to cut everything. There's so much wasted money, um, so much, in fact, that when uh, politicians and, and uh, citizens are asked, you know, where is this waste coming from, they can't usually actually name anything. It's just such a talking point. It's uh, there was a presidential candidate I forget who who was asked you know what are the like what would you oh he's like oh I have three things that I would cut there's three departments and he named like he's like oh NPR and uh, you know something oh I can't remember the other and it's like first of all NPR is like a dent not even a dent in the budget uh, obviously more than half the budget goes to the military which is you know beside the point but it's like when you when you come up with these these talking points and they just they get embedded into people's minds. And so you have transit managers that are, are trying to just, just cut everywhere. Um, they're, they're cutting not only, not only freezing wages and, you know, for, I mean, BART employees have been without a raise for like five years and it's like, okay, inflation is happening. So, um, you know, you're, you're, you're losing, you're basically, your wages are going down. They're, they're changing health insurance. So that, you know, they, the transit agencies can save money, but the plans are worse and employees just have to pay more. And there are a whole variety of things that they're doing that are just uh, degrading transit services because, uh, you know, when you when you cut recovery time at the end of the route, well, I mean, the bus is going to be on time less often. When you cut the number of people on the street supervising the bus service, well, now you're not going to have anybody there to correct for mistakes. When you cut the number of dispatchers and, you know, you I, um, there's a I used to say Boston is a case study in this, right? I mean, they cut and cut and cut their bus service over time. And they, they have like hardly anybody on the street to manage anything. Their service is like routinely 20 minutes late everywhere. Uh, it's bunched like crazy. They have like four dispatchers responsible for 180 bus routes. It's a disaster. And that's what happens when they're just slowly chipping and chipping away. And, and that's just one case study. It just goes on. This goes on everywhere. Um, and then there are places like, like New York that historically have run very, very good bus service. And, you know, um, in a place with the challenges of, of New York, you know, the bus service is generally very on time and very regular, you know, they're cutting and cutting everywhere they can as well. And they're going to wind up with some of these same problems very soon too. So, um, I, I just wanted to, I mean, this, I want to say this idea that, um, that it's, it's the, it's those unions and, you know, their demands for, well, um, fair wages and safe working environments, basically. Um, you know, all you have to do is just look at, uh, labor history, 
And unions are the reasons that you hear this often, right? Unions are the reasons that we have 40 hour work weeks, living wages, uh, fair grievance process. So, so that you don't get fired just because a customer complains, it, it ter- might turn out to be nonsense. Uh, you know, just all these things that safe working conditions, right? So, uh, you're not rushed to the point that you injure yourself. Um, you know, things like that. And, and, Corporations know this, and, and their political allies as well, and they've been chipping away at this for many years. So you know now that we're in this case where uh, transit agency budgets are being cut, and and their the managers are being forced and, and encouraged by the politicians to to go after employees. That's where they're they're going to find their savings because in a transit agency, eighty percent of your budget typically is going to be your labor expenses, right? Because you have to pay people, you got to provide them benefits. Um, the cost of fuel, as as much as it is, is not that much compared to the cost of labor and, and you know, what are your other costs are, are fairly minimal. So, you know, it, it's, um, so that's where they go for the savings. And, and obviously, you know, you could say, well, um, well, we don't have a lot of money. Okay, fine. This is cause we're spending it all in the military, like bombing people. Okay. Get the money from there. <laughs> but that's beside the point. So if you're, I just want to say this. So if you're one of the ignorant, misinformed people sitting in a cubicle, uh, typing numbers into your computer and uh, tweeting at me saying that I and my colleagues get paid too much. Um, how do I put this? Well, like, fuck off, number one. I mean, who are you to come in here and you don't know anything about my situation, about my work situation. You don't know what it's like to do my job. You don't know what my situation is. Uh, don't, don't come in and tell me that, uh, you know, that I'm getting paid too much to feed my family. Like, that's, fuck you. And the other thing is, just pause for a minute and think about what it's like to be a bus driver. You work in split shifts for five to ten years before you even get eligible for a straight shift. Um, And then you have odd hours too. Which A split shift means that you're waking up at like four o'clock in the morning, if if that late. You go into work, you 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 pull out, you go and inspect the bus, you pull out a bus... And you you have to drive it, you know, safely. I mean, you can't be tired, right? So you got to get a good night's sleep. You got to take this bus out, and you you put up with with all kinds of shit that you put up with, right? You get off at like nine or ten o'clock in the morning, take that bus back. Now you're off for four hours. Okay, well that's your own time. You're not getting paid for that time. What are you going to do in four hours? You're going to go home. Uh, by the time you get home and back, does that make any sense? No, you got you probably got to eat lunch out because you you don't you know bring in healthy food when you have time to make healthy food. Then you got to go back to work in the afternoon. You're dealing with all kinds of crap on the, you know, from a stress of, of drivers, which I, I mean, talk about on the show all the time, what it's like to be a bicyclist. I mean, a lot of similar stuff to be a bus driver. Um, you know, you have to deal with, with passengers const- constantly. It's annoying and hostile passengers. And who, uh, no thanks, who, thanks to our uh, media and, and political discourse, uh, tends to take you for granted. And they give you shit constantly. You get assaulted for doing your job. Uh, Bart in the, the rail in, in San Francisco, they, they just went on strike. Um, they one of the things that they're asking for is uh, safety improvements. They they said two thousand four hundred serious crimes each year happen on the BART system. Now this is not a huge system. I mean, this is that one subway line in San Francisco with a couple of the subway line branches out in in the East Bay. Uh, it's not a huge system. This is not you know we're not talking about New York City subway here. Um, twenty four hundred serious crimes each year, and these are and these are crimes that are serious enough to be reported to the FBI. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, guy gets mad because he got things got overcharged, he hits the glass and then he runs away. I'm talking about serious assaults that need to be reported to not just the police but the FBI, just the federal police. 
uh, if anybody doesn't live in the U.S. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Now, so then you say, oh, these unions, oh, they get paid too much. They just want too much. No, they want basic safety assurance. They're asking for bulletproof glass for the for the booths. I mean, you know. And then on top of this, the transit agencies are being starved of funds, so they can uh, so they cut the budgets constantly. And in addition to wage wage freezes, there are hiring freezes, so you can't hire the staff that you need to help you. So you're working overtime, you have more risk of stress, injury, etc. Um, your health insurance is being changed so that it's more expensive and, and more difficult, doesn't cover stuff. Um, your pension systems are being raided. Um, these are things that have been promised to people. And now all of a sudden uh, they're changing work rules. Uh, transit schedulers are trying to impress management by, you know, cutting minutes from recovery time, having fewer buses on the street, uh, fewer inspectors, things like this. And some of that's fine if you're if you're truly looking to evaluate performance and reallocate resources. You know, if you're saying, okay, you know, the ridership has dipped on this route, we can, you know, based on the numbers and, you know, we need one fewer bus at this time. And, oh, where can we use an extra bus? Oh, it's over here in this route that's always, you know, heaming with people. Um, there's always going to be those routes. Anybody who's transit manager is, you know, knows is, is shake, nodding your head right now. Um, and but you you don't ever get to do that. You just it just gets taken because you got to cut the budget. So now you have less to work with, and now now you got to go at it again next year. And well, now you don't have you know. And eventually, even if you have some slack, well, eventually you're not going to have it anymore because you've given it away. So it's just all this stuff adds up to to stress and. Um, you know, accident rates go up. I mean, just think about it. if you're if you're driving a bus, and now you don't have as much time at the end of the line because some somebody in an office who's never been a bus driver says, "Oh, well, okay. Well, now you know it only needs it only needs five minutes here. It doesn't need ten minutes." Well, now you know every time you're late, you don't get a chance to go to the bathroom. You don't get to step off the bus. Well, if the driver needs to go to the bathroom, the driver's going to go to the bathroom, and you know, and if that means that you got to stop the bus. You know, five minutes after the after the trip starts, because that's the only bathroom that's there. Well, you got to go to the bathroom. What does that do to the service? Uh, you know, I don't have to tell you that that makes the service late and bunching and all that other stuff. Um, and and so that, that's just an example. It's just services are being degraded, um, and because money is not being being allocated as it should, transit is not being taken seriously. Meanwhile, we continue to pour uh, you know billions and billions into roads and and highways. Um, you know, we, we're cutting transit routes or all that, but you know, do we ever close roads? I've never, I haven't heard of that, uh, recently. So, um, just an idea if, uh, if anybody's looking to, uh, to cut the budget. Um, so, um, a lot of support to the, uh, striking transit workers wherever you are. And, uh, those of you who are fighting hard for contracts, um, if there's any, anyone who is listening to the show, who is uh, an operator, I would love to hear from you and, um, tell me what you think and give some of your perspectives. Um, can be anonymous if you so choose. And, uh, you know, I'd love to, to hear from you and to share your perspectives with, with the audience. And uh, if you have something to contribute, I always encourage you to write in uh, feedback at criticaltransit.com and, uh, and you know, let us let us hear from you. Let the, let the world hear your wisdom. The next item I have to talk about, and I should try to be brief, is um, the climate change which is something I've been talking about for a long time. Uh, this is one of the reasons that I got into transit in the first place um, because it's I consider it an, an ethical thing to be, uh, you know, well, it's sad that it is, right? But it's a sort of, I guess I should say it's sort of sort of an unethical thing to be, uh, to be driving a car for everyday transportation. Um, and so 
transit is a solution to a lot of the problems that are associated with uh, with car ownership and use, right? So, and I don't need to get into this because we've talked about this before. And if you want to hear more about that, you should check out the last episode where I talked about that. My big rant against cars where I think that cars suck and, uh, yes, fuck cars. So, um, but this is, you know, cars are part of the reason for, or one of the big parts, one, one of the big reasons, I should say, for uh, climate change continuing to be a threat and becoming worse. Now, our politicians and, and many people just don't want to take this seriously. Um, just ignoring it because it really hasn't happened to them. And, um, you know, never mind the fact that there are, there are people who have had to move because sea level is rising, their communities are being threatened, there, there are places, people all over the world whose uh, farming lifestyles have changed. Um, and, you know, you talk to, go talk to any local farmer that's uh, selling, your, you know, strawberries at the farmer's market and they'll tell you how things have changed in recent years and, uh, you know, continue to change. Seasons change and everything has is, is, is changed um, because, we, it's not just, it's not just, you know, one of, one of the way people often describe this is uh, global warming, right? But, and it's true that the planet is warming, but it's not just like every place is going to be, you know, like Mexico and it's just going to be hot. Uh, no, it's, it's, that's part of it, but the, the weather patterns are becoming more severe. So we're seeing more natural disasters, more, we're seeing right now, we're seeing the, the wildfire season lengthening. So this is something that happens in the Southwest U.S. It happens in uh, in parts of Canada. You know, British Columbia has a serious wildfire season. Um, this happens in Europe. It's happening. It happens all over, uh, all over the world. Uh, and there's certain places that traditionally have had wildfires, but the seasons are becoming longer. Uh, the the brush is becoming drier. The conditions for fires for wildfires are becoming better. So. You know, we just had, uh, there was just a case in, in Arizona uh, last week, I believe, where about 20 firefighters died uh, fighting the fire. And, you know, the media did their usual, oh, you know, where, you know, they interviewed the family member. I was so sad. You know, he was a great person and all this other stuff. Okay, fine. I'm sure that's I'm sure that's true. But they don't talk about what's really going on here behind that. You know, that, that these wildfires are becoming worse. Um, and this is something we have to do something about. We just just saw a couple days ago uh, in in Quebec, a small town in Quebec, a train carrying oil of all things, crude oil, uh, you know, which is used to provide fuel, gas, right? Um, train derailed in Quebec and destroyed an entire town, um, thousands of homes, uh, like sixty people missing. It was just you know several people dead, and I mean that's you know okay why? Because we're carrying uh, oil. And I mean, lax uh, train regulations uh, were certainly a, a part of this. This was a, a train that was that currently did not have an engineer at the time of the crash, and um, it it started rolling by itself and uh, derailed, and uh, you know, and then just set the whole city on fire. Um, there's flooding everywhere. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was in central Pennsylvania, and then I went to Pittsburgh. And then I, like, just a week after that, I, I read in the news that pretty much all of central Pennsylvania is underwater. Um, you know, Penn State University, the main campus where I was, is, I mean, the buildings were all flooded out. Um, you know, and then, and then I've been reading about Calgary, and Calgary has been, has been flooded for like a month. Um, the whole downtown is destroyed. Uh, large parts of the city are destroyed. Um, you know, they, 
you can't, you can't get anywhere, right? I mean, you can't even live, right? So everything is, you know, your work's not happening. You're not getting paid. I mean, nothing's, nothing's going on. And then I just read yesterday in Toronto, Toronto right now, as we speak, is under, I mean, they had like a hundred millimeters of water in, in like a few hours. Um, and they're under, you know, I mean, their streets have five, six feet of water in them. Um, there were people stranded on trains. They had to come on boats and rescue people because the train, the water was so high, it went into the trains and the buses. Um, you know, rescuing people on boats. I mean, this stuff, I mean, in, in this succession, you know, the, the, all these severe events this close together, um, this kind of stuff has never happened before. This is not, this is not, you know, your typical, oh, it's a bad storm kind of thing. No, this is, I mean, this is fucked up. This is, if we don't get the message and start doing something, um, you know, the media doesn't care. Um, and I don't know what it's going to take and if you have any ideas, you should email me, feedback at criticaltransit.com, and I will share, because I don't have any idea what it's going to take to get people to start taking this threat seriously. And if we wait until the politicians in middle America have their homes underwater, uh, it's going to be way too late. I mean, then we're going to be pretty much extinct. Um, and it'll probably serve the planet well if uh, the humans are gone. But, I mean, that's not really my objective. Um, I would like to live peacefully with the planet and everybody else on it. Um, and so the there are two things that we need to do. We need to, first, we need to make changes to uh, sort of slow and eventually stop the uh, threat of climate change. So, um, you know, eventually stop contributing to it, right? So by, by polluting the atmosphere with all these gases, by continuing to burn fossil fuels, by uh, eating lots of meat, um, and doing all the things that we do that are that are contributing to climate change. Uh, and the other thing we have to do is uh, adaptation, because we we've already passed the point at which there's going to be no impacts, as as we can tell. So we need to start talking about, you know, do we do we are we building seawalls? Are there are there towns that have to be abandoned? Do we have to pay pay people to relocate? There's a, a town um, called uh, Far, well, it's a city called Fargo, North Dakota. Um, and right across the river is Moorhead, Minnesota. Um, and, and they're on this, uh, I believe it's called the Red River. And this river, every year it, uh, it floods its banks. Um, but in recent years, it has been so severe that eventually the state government bought homes of people, just voluntary, voluntarily bought the homes of people that were close to the river. And, um, and that's something unprecedented because, you know, often they'll offer, but people don't want to leave their homes, you know, and what does it take to get somebody out of their home that, you know, the, everything they know, they, they'd rather rebuild, right? But after rebuilding for dozens of times, they'll say, okay, look, this is ridiculous. We're happy to take this money and go elsewhere. So they literally like abandon whole parts of the city because they get yearly flooding. Now, and it's been getting worse and worse. And are these the kinds of things we're going to have to do? Are we going to have to start abandoning places? Because, and this is essentially what we've done. I mean, there are other places. There's um, that one of my favorites was the uh, the Maldives, which is a small island nation in the Pacific Ocean, um, consists of a bunch of islands. They a while back, I remember they held a, an underwater press conference to try to get attention to the the threat of climate change, and of course, it didn't do anything. Um, but they've had to move people because they're just, I mean, islands are underwater. So I don't know. If you have any ideas, uh, what can we uh, do to get people to pay attention? Um, send me a note to feedback at criticaltransit.com, and I will uh, I will share it. And uh, 
maybe I can get somebody to talk about the science behind this. And um, I feel like the science is not debatable anymore. I feel like, I mean, I feel like this is what the media does, right? They call in, they bring on a, they bring on a Democrat and they bring on a Republican and the Republican goes, oh, this climate change is all hoax. Al Gore made it up. It's ridiculous. And the Democrat goes, well, I think we might have something to do with it. I don't know. But, I mean, we should probably we should probably do something about it. But, uh, you know, and nothing ever – they don't bring any scientists to actually explain. Um, and part of that is because they know that every scientist who doesn't work for Exxon or some other oil company – is in agreement that climate change is the reality and it's getting worse. Um, and the less we do about it, the, uh, the longer we do nothing then uh, you know, the worse it's going to get. Um, and so we just, but we just don't want to admit that. Um, I don't know. Anyway, I'm done talking about climate change. It's a really sad subject and uh, we're all going to die. So yay. Gotta see it my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can't go on? Well, you see it your way. Pittsburgh a few weeks ago, and uh, it's a very interesting place. Um, it's a it's an old mill city um, in the United States. It's about uh, five hours, maybe three hundred miles west of Philadelphia, um, which is near the not too far from the Atlantic Ocean. Um, for those of you who are geographically challenged or unfamiliar with the, the United States, um, in Pennsylvania there are two cities, uh, two big cities, um, Philadelphia being the bigger one, obviously in the southeast corner. And then uh, Pittsburgh being the uh, the second largest city in the west portion of the state, right on the western border uh, with Ohio, and uh, it's a, it's a really interesting place. It's it's very hilly, 
Um, so from anywhere, you can get great views of the city, which is great. It also makes for some challenging biking. Um, and when I got there, I arrived at the Bike Valley Station for, uh, for uh, the Three Rivers Arts Festival, which was being coordinated by Bike PGH, the uh, local advocacy group. And uh, so I got to talk to them about some bike stuff, and I'm hoping to follow up with them in the near future. Uh, it's one of the things on, on my list. Um, but uh, it's a really interesting place. It's uh, It was the birthplace of the U.S. Steel Corporation, which is one of the big steel manufacturers. Uh, among others, uh, lots of industry over there that has gone away over time. And, um, you know, now they, I mean, they still have a big, big university. They got a beautiful library um, and um, park system out in there. They kind of have like a satellite downtown. It's, it's a little weird. There's like, there's the old, the old downtown right in the, um, Pittsburgh is, is sort of, um, it's on the edge of three rivers. So there's kind of a, there's kind of an area, it's hard to explain, but maybe you should uh, look it up on the map. There's a little area called the point, which is kind of in between three, it's, it's uh, surrounded by three rivers, um, on the north, south, and west. And, um, and that's where the downtown is. And then further east, a couple miles is, uh, Oakland, which is, uh, sort of, it's kind of known as the second downtown, uh, the um, university is out there, and there's a bunch of you know, business and retail and all kinds of other stuff. And so, um, so it's a, anyway, really interesting place to to walk around, to bike around. Uh, the people were really friendly and awesome, and they had some great transit features too. Uh, Pittsburgh is a is a really interesting city to visit from a transit perspective because um, they have a very big diversity of transit modes. Um, and one thing that they that they have that's um, that's just really unique is uh, two inclines. Uh, these are basically just essentially cable cars that are located on the side of a, what's essentially a mountain, and uh, they move up and down at six miles per hour. Uh, each each of the inclines, there's the Monongahela incline and the Duquesne incline, and both of these inclines have uh, two cars. And right next to each other, connected by a cable. There's basically picture uh, picture one car at the top and uh, one car at the bottom. And what they do is the the car at the top coming down uh, pulls the cable, which then pulls the other car up. So it's it's actually run with very little electricity, uh, very little power, because it mostly powers itself. Just the weight of one car pulling the other car. Um, it's a really interesting system, and uh, you know, I went up, I went up both of them. It's um, it's actually kind of cool. If you um, one of them, I, I took my bike up, um, and you can imagine uh, the ride uh, coming down is much nicer than the, the ride going up. Um, but it's so steep over there, you can't actually. There's not actually a road there, um, and that's why these these two inclines have survived as long as they have. Um, so people uh, get the incline from the, from the bottom, you know, right on the uh, on the south side of the river, and then. They'll take it to the top, and then they can make bus connections, um, which is really a, it's an interesting way, a sort of um, interesting way to get around. And uh, you go back in the day when these inclines were built, um, there were um, eventually there were streetcars and things. But in the beginning, you know, everybody just walked to the incline, and then you take the incline down, and then you have little streetcars taking you over to wherever else uh, in downtown. Um, so a really interesting system, very very unique, and, uh, and I'm glad I was able to to ride that. And I think inclines are can be wonderful for that sort of thing because um, they can handle grades that no other mode of transportation can.
Um, I was thinking about the people who have to get out there and uh, do the maintenance, uh, repair rails and you know, fix ties and that sort of thing. Um, they have to get out there on that slope. Um, they must. You know, hopefully they have uh, harnesses and things to tie to the top so they don't fall down. The other thing that Pittsburgh is, is uh, well known for in the transit world is uh, its busway system. Uh, back in the 80s, they pioneered the concept of uh, a dedicated busway where um, you know, very few cities have dedicated, any dedicated space for buses. Most cities have dedicated space for trains, uh, but not for buses. And uh, as I've explained before in the show, there's really no good reason for that. It's just sort of a, you know, a tradition thing. It's sort of um, because, you know, streetcars used to have their own space and then railroads. And then when, when they were phased out in favor of uh, coach buses, um, they had to share the road with general traffic. Uh, and this was not you know, this was not a pro-bus thing, that, a pro-transit thing. This was, you know, uh, car companies basically buying up streetcar lines, ripping them out and replacing them with buses that had to share the road with traffic because they wanted the systems to fail. Um, that's no secret, at least it shouldn't be to any of us. Um, but uh, there are a number of um, excellent films on and uh, books on that that I'm blanking on right now. Um, I think Who Killed the Electric Car is one that, that goes into this. Uh, but anyway, so... So traditionally, buses have had to share the road with general traffic. And in the 80s, what Pittsburgh did is they created a, a busway that was roughly parallel to one of the busiest uh, heavily traveled roads. And, and they thought, well, you know, we can draw people off the roads onto the busway. Um, and it, and it works, it's worked very well. Um, the busways, uh, busways are very well used. And um, busways are great because they, they give you flexibility. You know, a bus can operate on any street, but it can also operate in its own dedicated infrastructure, obviously. So um, within, it, it can it can run through the busway, make this make certain stops, and then it can uh, leave the busway and operate in with general traffic. Um, so that's really great. It's flexible. You can put the busway where it's really needed and um, not where it isn't. Now, there are some deficiencies in the busway system, obviously. None of them go completely into the downtown. Um, the east busway goes the closest to the downtown. It runs along... The, uh, along the railroad tracks that are uh, to the east uh, from, I guess, Penn Station. And, and it, it ends right at the edge of downtown. So, and then it, there are you know, bus, uh, painted bus lanes in downtown, uh, for, for what that's worth. Um, and so it's, not, so it's not, it's not great in that context because it doesn't, it doesn't go all the way downtown. So in the most congested area, it still has to share space with car traffic. And this is, um, so you know, it could be improved in, in that way. Um, and one, one thing I noticed about the, the busway is that um, there, it was, uh, the, well, so there was the original busway, which I believe was the south busway, and then the uh, west and east busways were opened. Um, the west busway actually is pretty cool because it includes a little transit tunnel. Um, because there are so many steep hills and, and essentially mountains in the city, there are a few places where a tunnel was built through the mountain instead of having to go over and, and down. Uh, and in at least that one place at the beginning of the West Busway is a tunnel that's shared by the light rail uh, or the trolley and the bus. And uh, it's very narrow. It's uh, it's kind of a little scary as much the buses going past each other in there because it's, uh, you know, it's got to be like 10 or 11 feet wide in each direction. And they're going pretty fast. And uh, so that's pretty cool. And so as the busways were expanded, they they still suffer from a lot of the features that, uh, bus systems are, are known for, which is that lack of information, um, 
not great stops. Uh, in in particular, the case of the I'm thinking of the East Busway, but I guess I guess all of them. Um, the stops are kind of down in a, it's, it's sort of in a trench, in a, like an open cut area next to the train. And so the stops are kind of, you have to go down the steps or, or sometimes a ramp to get to the stops. And, uh, you know, they're not always, not, the shelters are just not great. And it just, I don't know, it just feels kind of lousy and lonely down there. There's nothing going on down there. And there's just no information whatsoever. It's sort of a case study in uh, transit information because, I mean, this is something, and I guess this is a, I'll go off on this tangent. This is something that I, I deal with when I visit many cities, that the information is very difficult to come by. And uh, so the ride itself might be great. Like in this case of the busway, the bus is fast and it's convenient and easy. Uh, but if you don't easily understand the service and feel confident that it will deliver what it promises it's going to deliver, then uh, you won't use it. Um, and so when I travel, it's very. I find this this common problem that I want to get into in a future show and uh, talk about it in more detail. Maybe I can have a guest or two to, to join me for it. Um, transit agencies are, are generally set up to to provide uh, customer information from the perspective of uh, tell me where you are right now and where you want to go right now, and I'll tell you how to get there. I'll tell you the quickest way to get there, leaving right now or leaving at a time that you tell me you want to leave. Um, now, but if I'm trying, if I'm trying to learn the system here, if I'm not a regular user, um, the kind of people who tend would tend to use the trip planner system, uh, I want to know my options. So having this one itinerary uh, to get, okay, I can go to I can go to my friend's house. If I leave at I leave at two nineteen, and I can get the two twenty five bus, and then I transfer at three o'clock, make a transfer, and then I'll get there at four o five. Okay, fine, but that's great, but. I need to know my options for getting back or to get to the next place. If I if I get there and then I try to go back and I find out oh the bus is done and it was the last one or the bus only runs once an hour or uh, I have to pick it up in a certain place, these are things that I need to know. So uh, more importantly, I need to understand the basics of what services are available, how they work, and how they might help me. Um, so, for example, in in, in Pittsburgh, one of the big problems that I had was that there is no system map. Uh, I even tried to go to the downtown transit customer service center, and they, they were like, oh, yeah, we don't have a system map. We might have something like it on a website. We don't know. Um, so this is this is an example of undervaluing your system serv your service because if you're not if, – if, if your service is, is not good enough to be shown to new people and uh, to be shared and sort of encourage people to learn – the system and how they can live with it. Um, this is not just for visitors. This this helps you learn your mobility options. Um, so take for example, uh, moving to a new city. Right, uh, you move to a new place. You need to learn a transit system, and you might, you know, you might find an apartment. Okay, this and somebody tells you, okay, it's on this this frequent bus route that you know runs downtown. Um, for example, the place that I just moved to in Minneapolis is on the number five bus. Okay, so I can hop off and I can number five buses across the street from where I live. I can get that to downtown. Um, okay, so that's useful, but I also need to know what are the other transit options in the neighborhood. You know, what if I need to go to St. Paul? What if I need to go to Uptown? What if I want to go to the airport? What if I want to go to, you know, where? What are the the bus routes that are around where I live, and uh, and where can they get me? How often do they run? What time of day do they run? You know, if something only runs on the weekends and or on the weekdays rather, um, I guess. I guess if it only runs on the weekends, it would be the same thing. Um, but that, that limits the options. 
So you need to know these things, and um, without providing that information, you're you're really underselling yourself because you, people just aren't going to use a service that that might be great. Um, and this, so it's in, in Fisbury again. You know, there were no posted maps or schedules, even even in this dedicated infrastructure, this busway that is controlled by the transit authority. There's no maps or schedules. I, I got to the busway stop, and there's no schedules or anything. Um, now, in some cases, I had one already, and in a couple of cases, I just had to wait and wait. And I didn't have to wait very long, but there's no indication of that. You know, there's no. When I find that about a service, I want to know: um, Do I have to check a schedule? And if so. You know, give me a schedule. Uh, do I will I know that um, at all times between six a.m. and midnight there's going to be a bus at least every ten minutes? Okay, great. If I know that, then I don't need a schedule, but I need to know that. I need to know where the bus goes. I need to know how much it costs and how I pay my fare. Um, I need to know just a lot of things that very basic stuff. Um, I need to understand the route structures. Um, the buses in Pittsburgh are all different colors, uh, and apparently the colors don't mean anything. But you know, it, it, I, so if if they if they do if that does mean something, then I need to know that if if uh, the bus is going to be a, a coach type bus or um, a transit bus that that might be useful information depending on whether there are multiple routes there and um, you know all these things these information cues uh, need to be provided so that I so that I understand and it needs to be explained so that I understand uh, what it is that I'm uh, that I'm getting into um, and destination signs. For God's sakes, would you stop putting sports teams on the destination signs? This is one of my pet peeves, and I'm going to harp on this forever. Um, I, when I see a bus show up, I don't want to see Go Buccaneers or Go Pirates or whatever the hell. I want to see the number, the route number. I want to see the route identification number, and I want to see the destination of the bus. And it's helpful if it says it goes via this street or whatever. But I want to know the information that I need to use. To decide whether that's my bus because the bus is coming I need to know whether I whether I'm gonna get on it and whether I should make sure that the bus is stopping for me or if I can step back and let the bus go um, for the regular user who takes the bus every day or all the time knows the bus you need to see the number and the destination so you know if it's going the right way or at the very least you need to see the number um, and more information is usually needed for the, the new user um, to make sure that the bus is going where they want to go um, and, and then you, you can ask the driver, but you don't want to just have the bus stop and then ask the driver, oh, is this the you know 66 bus? Uh, because the stupid sign is being used for some nonsense, you know, go sports team. Um, that's so infuriating. Um, anyway, moving along. Um, so the busway is a wonderful concept. It works really well, um, and the infrastructure is there. But... Um, this is, yeah, I, I got to sometimes say to the people who advocate for streetcars, and uh, they say, oh, well, the tracks are there. You know where the train's going because you can see the tracks. Well, in this case, the infrastructure is there. There's clearly the busway, um, but you, that doesn't mean that automatically you know where the bus is going, when it's coming, anything. So uh, same thing for rail. So um, can you guys please stop saying that? Thank you. Um, the fares were sort of interesting system in Pittsburgh. Um, in general, it was uh, you pay when boarding uh, in the inbound direction, uh, as is normal pretty much everywhere. Um, but you pay when you exit on the uh, on the outbound trips, with a few exceptions. Um, and this was a very interesting. And the, there's um, sort of two reasons I can I can figure for this. And one is uh, what what uh, Port Authority of Allegheny County, the, the operator, is saying. 
is that um, the dwell times, and they just don't want to. There's so many people downtown um, that they want the buses to keep moving. And okay, it sort of makes sense, but not really because you're spending the same time at the stops when people are exiting because now you're it's just taking a while for people to get off because they got to pay, um, and you can only use the front door. Um, and that's the other thing. Yeah, they don't they don't use the front. They only use the back door downtown, which sort of seems like a waste of having a separate door. Um, downtown is a free fare zone, so that seems to be the main reason they do it this way. Because um, in the downtown, you know, you hop on, hop off, and then it's if you're getting off outside of downtown, that's when you would, you would then have to pay. So it would prevent people from just you know getting on and saying, "Oh yeah, I'm only going two blocks," and then they you know go five miles and don't have to pay. Um, which is some other places have this um, where they have a like Minneapolis they have a fifty cent uh, downtown fare zone. Um, and I think there are some other places that have a free fare zone. I believe Seattle just recently got rid of their free fare zone for political reasons, um, which I don't really agree with, but that's a, that's a separate thing. Um, so I thought that the fares in Pittsburgh were kind of expensive, and I feel like this probably has to do with years of cutting back service. Um, Pittsburgh is not the, the wealthiest city in the world, and so um, but for a single ride it was two fifty. Um, and it was a dollar for a transfer. And many, if not most, trips are going to require a transfer. So, um, and the transfer, you only get one use. You know, unlike a lot of places in, that I've encountered uh, in Minneapolis and uh, Denver and uh, Portland, San Francisco, and a bunch of other places in the Midwest and, and elsewhere, where you you get unlimited rides for like two hours. Um, here in Pittsburgh, you would only get, you only get, you know, you pay that three fifty, including your transfer, and, uh, and you only get to use it once. So if you have multiple vehicles, not too bad. Um, you can't use it for a quick return trip, which would save money for people for whom 350 is a lot of money. And uh, so I thought that was that was kind of uh, unfortunate. Um, I did get a chance to go down when I was in Pittsburgh to the neighboring city of Braddock, which I had never heard of before, but I, I met somebody in Pittsburgh who was from Oregon who was very excited to go down to um, the Braddock and see she had said that it was like the Detroit of uh, it was like a mini Detroit um, and that it was you know struggling city basically everybody had left and um, and that's pretty much what it was we went down there um, we took the east busway to the end uh, Swiss Vale I believe it was called and then uh, we got the number 61 bus to Braddock and um, Port Authority just made a bunch of nice changes on the 61 bus and that we get to take advantage of, and then extended service into the center of Braddock, which was great. Um, so we got to see their their library, which was a really interesting. It was a community center. Um, they had it's a you know big fancy old building, um, but they had a they had a concert hall and they had a pool and they had, it was a community center for youth, and it was a really really nice facility. Um, but then all around it, pretty much, were just these old uh, abandoned buildings. And uh, from what I understand, you can buy buildings really cheap there. You can buy a whole building for like $2,000. Um, now, I don't know. I mean, people could be exaggerating that, but uh, I'm sure it's pretty cheap. Uh, and you're close to Pittsburgh, so, I mean, you know, you could work in Pittsburgh and, I mean, could make the building into lofts or, I don't know, art space or music space or something cool. Um, I don't know. But it's a very interesting place to see in sort of uh, the same way I saw Flint, Michigan a while ago, um, which is also due for an episode. Um, you know, just a really struggling city where basically everybody has left and there's just so much vacant space, vacant buildings, vacant land. Um, and it just feels weird just walking through, um, certainly wouldn't want to be there uh, at night. It just feels creepy. Um, but 
yeah, um, I guess the nice thing when I was in Flint was that there was uh, basically no traffic, so I could just bike wherever I want. I mean, the roads were a little scary. They were like six lanes, but um, there was no traffic at all, so I pretty much had the roads myself. Um, not that they were in great condition, of course. Sometimes I needed the whole two lanes to dodge potholes, uh, but that's beside the point. So I had a great time in Pittsburgh. Um, I guess one other thing I should comment on is the uh, trolley system. This is uh, about 20-year-old light rail that was, um, you know, after, like many cities, after a long history of having no trains and everybody uh, everybody wanted trains back because, um, you know, they had they had worked a little bit on, on, uh, on the busways. But, you know, everybody wants trains back because of this thing, because of the history where uh, trains were always given... Uh, the dedicated right of way, and even when they weren't, they were given respect. You know, people get out of the way. They weren't these private cars clogging everything up. And when, when buses came around, buses were, you know, automatically inferior because of that. And then uh, cities have continued to run buses uh, much worse than they run trains in, in general. Uh, and so you don't have to look far and wide to find this. You know, you look at any any American city that has rail transit. And you see it's, it's run much better. It's given a dedicated right-of-way. It's got signal priority and crossing gates even. I mean, they get, you know, they can go very fast. They get nice stations. Um, all the things that, that we really should be doing for buses and some other countries have done for buses. Um, but we, you know, our buses get stuck in mixed traffic and have to, you know, put up with every every idiot in their car who, uh, you know, is too selfish to take the bus. Um, so... You know, they, they made some bus changes, but of course everybody wants rail, because that's, they think of rail as being better than bus, um, which is not inherently, but in the way we've run it, then it is. So uh, eventually they, they opened um, two, two light rail lines, the blue and the red line, although they basically, they, um, they branch off south of downtown, and then they come together, and then they branch off again. And sometimes the blue line goes west, and sometimes the red line goes east and vice versa, and it's a little confusing. But um, but it's basically just going into the suburbs, and it's it's more commuter than anything else. And so it's sort of it's sort of interesting. It's it's not the Pittsburgh's not the only city that has built a light rail line or, or high quality transit, uh, focusing on the suburbs before dealing with issues in the city. Uh, but there's talk now of uh, BRT going out to Oakland, which is that second downtown that I mentioned. So um, that's exciting, and. Um, but the system is, it's about 20 years old. It's, um, and people call it the trolley. It's, it, so it does go into the downtown. It makes a number of stops in the downtown, but it's, it's not really that useful for getting around downtown because, um, downtown is not that big and the train is not that frequent, especially on, on weekends. It's only every 15 minutes on, on weekends or every 10 minutes at best. So, um, you know, usually faster just walking, but it, but it does run underground in downtown and then it, it goes, under the, uh, the Northern River, uh, I forget which one that is, um, and then it emerges uh, to make two stops, uh, one serving the, um, the baseball stadium, I believe, and then another one serving uh, the North Shore neighborhood. Um, it's not entirely clear um, what's, you know, what the ridership is like over there. It looks fairly low, uh, that North Shore there, but, uh, but that was a recent extension that was made, and I actually know somebody who I worked with in New York, who actually was out there at the opening of that North, North Shore extension. Um, he went out there that Sunday that they opened and he rode it at 5 a.m., uh, the first train. So um, I'm not, I guess I'm not a real rail fan if I, if I don't do that, right? So I'm going to move along because um, I don't want to talk 
too much about one place, and I have a lot of listener feedback to get into, and the show is getting long already. So hopefully you enjoyed that, and if you have some thoughts to share about Pittsburgh, uh, or I guess any other place, um, please write in feedback at criticaltransit.com, where you can contact me via the website or on Twitter or Facebook at Critical Transit. And I uh, always love to hear from you and your thoughts on transit systems that you may be familiar with or uh, transit in general. My apologies for the buzzing. I think that's uh, something with the computer that I'm not entirely sure what it is, but I think I've solved it somehow. So anyway, on with listener feedback. Time now for some feedback, and you all know that I enjoy hearing from you, and I've been hearing from more of you lately, so um, I'm going to make sure that I make space on every show for feedback from multiple people, and sometimes that comes in the form of email or a comment submitted through the website, and other times that uh, comes through um, you know, interactions in, um, in sort of the public sphere, and other times that comes through forums like Twitter and Facebook. Uh, a lot of people have been commenting on my posts on Twitter, and I've been sharing a lot of things, and so I um, certainly want to highlight some of that because I know not everybody uh, gets on there. And again, the uh, address for sending feedback is feedback at criticaltransit.com, and you can also find me on Twitter at criticaltransit. You can go to the website, criticaltransit.com, and uh, in addition to loads of great content there, uh, you will find... Uh, on the top, there is a contact page that you can go to, and over there you can submit something through the contact form, or you can feel free to comment on the podcast post or any other post that I make. Um, there's been a little bit of a lack of posts there, and that's just because I've been busy with moving and everything else, and I'm looking to actually redesign the website a little bit, and I'm going to transition to sh- a shorter style, sort of like a, you know, almost like a quick tips kind of thing, where I, I give information um you know, in, in like a paragraph or so, um, just, you know, ideas of this is a good way to do something. This is a good way to design the street. This is why this thing doesn't work or something very quick and simple. And, uh, you know, and if I need to elaborate, maybe I will, but I'm going to try to keep it really brief and, uh, and hopefully that will be of interest to people who, you know, don't have the time to go and read through extensive blog posts and, and I'll save the extensive commentary for the podcast. I wanted to say thanks to those of you who have sent in your support. Um, I heard from a bunch of people about the last show, um, and some people asking me, when is there going to be another show? And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm working on it. So I'm doing it right now. So, um, yeah, so thanks to those of you who enjoyed my anti-car rant, uh, if you will. And um, I'm glad to know that there are other people out there, and I did not get any hate mail, so that, that was good. And uh, I kind of expected some. So either either that means that uh, nobody is listening or, well, probably that. Um, probably just the five people that I heard from. One of those people said uh, that the thought to the rant, he agreed with everything in the rant, but that uh, didn't like the, the language. And um, yeah, I think basically he is saying, uh, watch your fucking language is essentially what he's saying. Um, but... <laughs> which I've been known to say before myself. Um, but I, I listen to a bunch of podcasts, and I feel like it's my podcast. I can say whatever the fuck I want. Um, and I will. So there. Um, fuck cars. Uh, they suck. And um, go back and listen to episode 33 if you are trying to figure out where did that come from. Um, or just listen to like any episode that I've ever recorded, because I'm pretty sure that I've said something bad about cars in every episode that I've recorded. 
And speaking of being an anti-car or, or a pro-person and pro-animal, human and non-human, uh, you should check out the Progressive Podcast Australia. And uh, thanks to Katie and Nick for uh, talking about, and actually they, they played a piece of my uh, anti-car rant, which is, which is great. Um, and there they that's in um, episode 31, part two, about 55 minutes in. Uh, but you should listen to the whole thing and every past episode because that is an amazing podcast and um, they are right on. And I think I think we have at least, I know we have a lot in common. And one critical thing that we have in common, I think, is that we uh, say and promote what we believe in. And, you know, we try hard not to like water down our message. Um, you know, and they're talking about some of their other ideologies. You know, we're not... Um, in terms of whether it be immigration or animal rights or any number of other things that they talk about. Um, you know, here we're talking about transportation and not trying to, you know, be happy with, okay, a little bit of paint here and there and not really changing the system. But, you know, really talking about how the system is, is completely messed up. Um, so check out that show. It's uh, progressivepodcastaustralia.com, and uh, I should put a link to that. Um, thanks to Minku from the Vegan Pedicab Podcast for promoting my show and um tweeting at me regularly and i was on episode 10 of his podcast the vegan pedicab podcast um talking mostly about social justice issues but we might have had a little bit of transit in there and maybe something about pedicabs um that was like a month ago i don't remember (laughs) so uh yeah um but check that out veganpedicab.com and uh eli writes um he's from amherst massachusetts which is a small city um in What's well, considered Western Massachusetts, but it's basically the geographic center. Um, it's a small city or town. It's, it's basically a college town. Um, not a lot of, not a whole lot of people live there, but um, University of Massachusetts at Amherst is a big forty thousand student university, and um, and they have a big bus system that's sort of oriented. Uh, a, di- a division of the local transit agency is sort of oriented to serve that uh, the college, and it's it's free service. That's run um, by, and, and the drive. It's driven by students, which is uh, which is really interesting. Um, when you you know get on a bus and you see you know eighteen year old, nineteen year old people driving the bus, and um, and the bus is just full of college students. It's just sort of interesting. Um, but it's a very rural area, and uh, people are kind of commuting long distances on these buses. Uh, but the other divisions too. There's uh, you know the one that mostly covers Northampton. It provides sort of the city service, and then there's Springfield, which is a big city. Um, so anyway. Um, Eli writes, I'm a cycling instructor. I teach people how to use bicycles as an efficient and flexible mode of transportation. Most people think of bicycle transportation as severely limited, uh, slow, difficult, stressful, and dangerous. However, if done correctly, it is none of those. Um, and then he writes, uh, I rely on cy- cycling for almost all my transportation. I do not drive a car. And uh, this is, um, yeah, the techniques uh, make this possible. Um, he says he has one point of frustration with the podcast. When commenting on cycling, you and many of your guests seem to take a quite naive and uncritical view of special bike facilities, as if anything done in the name of cyclists is automatically good for cyclists. In truth, many special bike facilities are highly problematic and create hazards for the very people they are intended to help. They must be evaluated critically in terms of traffic dynamics, vehicle characteristics, and human cognition. One major challenge of cycling education is clearing up the confusion created by bad street designs and showing people how to deal with the problems they create. Those misconceptions often engender fear and help people from utilizing the full power of the bicycle. Uh, and then Eli recommends a couple of guests uh, to talk about uh, bike safety and designing streets for, for 
bikes. And uh, so I'm definitely going to look into those. And um, and I'd love to have somebody come and talk about that in the, in the near future. Um, but thanks for thanks for sending that feedback in. And I think you're absolutely right that many bike facilities are poorly designed and dangerous. Um, anybody who's ever used a bike trail knows that uh, many of them have extremely dangerous curves, drop-offs, highway crossings, uh, where you you know you can't see and it just comes up suddenly, or you're, you're expected to cross like a 55 mile per hour street with uh, with just a little painted crosswalk, no signals. Um, you know, lack of maintenance. They they don't get plowed in the winter, so you're, um, you know, you get this beautiful bike path, and then in the winter it's it's covered in snow. So you, you know, you're biking in the street and trying to take a lane, and everybody's get on the bike path, get out of the street, and um, you know, stuff like that. And and um, one of the one of the problems with um, with bike accommodations um, and bike on street bike facilities and everything is, you know, aside from the limited visibility and um, these unexpected dangerous conflict points is the implication that bikes only belong in places with designated bike space. Um, you know, anybody who rides in a place where there's not a lot of bikes around or even in big cities, sometimes you hear people yell, you know, get on the sidewalk or, you know, they, if they take this, if there's no bike lane, they think you don't belong on the street at all. Um, and that's not the case. So, um, these are certainly um, big problems, and I think part of this is because many of the paths and lanes and other uh, quote-unquote accommodations are designed uh, and implemented by people who don't understand or appreciate bicycling, so they ignore potentially big problems, either because they don't care or because they just don't understand that it's a problem. Um, and and that's uh, and notice, of course, you know these things are all viewed as as accommodations. Okay, these are things that we have to do. We sort of have to deal with bikes because they're here. Um, but there's never any sort of desire, like really, like promote bicycling or uh, you know just have somebody who's you know somebody like on the engineering team who is really um, who's a bicyclist and and sort of knows what bike needs are and and um, you know carrying that out. Um, that's that happens, but it's pretty rare. Um, and it's mostly in cities, and and of course the state highway departments are always the most regressive on on this issue. Uh, another problem I think is that there's a desire among bike advocates simply to get more people biking, which is great, but often it causes them to support and promote this false choice of something that's okay, somewhat dangerous, but uh, it's better than nothing, and uh, you know we'd rather have that over the status quo because it gets more people biking at the very least. Um, and the thing is, if you're trying to get new cyclists on the street, you don't want to put them in these dangerous situations where they may not know all the hazards they have to look out for. And, um, you know, it sets people up for crashes and, and other problems. So, um, these are important issues that I think we should discuss further. And, uh, and, uh, thank you so much for that, for that feedback. And, uh, I have a dream that someday I'll be able to get cities to hire me to conduct safety audits of, uh, projects for bike safety, um, and, uh, bike trails and things and, you know, and just fix safety problems. Um, I don't know, maybe somebody's doing that now, but judging by all the paths and trails and lanes and everything that I see, like there's a lot of, uh, just, just haphazardness and, and, uh, not really understanding what bikes really need. And, uh, so yeah, and that's why a lot of people say that bike lanes are, uh, are dangerous or, um, I tend to think that they, you know, bike facilities can be great if they are well designed and implemented. Um, but a lot of people say that that isn't, isn't really what's happening, and so we just need to stop making them. And bikes just need to be confident to get on the road. And um, this philosophy is generally called vehicular cycling. Um, but it's something that we want to explore in more detail because there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that, even if I don't agree with the idea that bike lanes are inherently bad. So hopefully this is something we can come back to in the near future.
Um, next item I wanted to share here. Um, oh, into Chicago. Um, I, I'm a member of the Chainlink Forum, which uh, I talked about. I think it was episode 25 where I interviewed Julie, the uh, the run the person who runs and maintains the site. Um, I was going to say the founder, but that, that's not correct. Um, and so Julie's great. We had a great interview and check that out, episode 25. Um, but I, I get, and I'm not too involved with the forum now because I don't live in Chicago anymore, but I get their weekly email and, uh, you know, the, she highlights a bunch of, um, popular forum topics. And so I, uh, so I checked out, uh, one of the ones that was in the, the most recent newsletter was, uh, about bikes on Metra. Um, the Metra is the commuter slash regional railroad that goes from the city along a number of branches into the suburbs. Um, a lot of cities have these, especially these big older cities, um, you know, it's like uh, SEPTA in Philadelphia or MBTA in Boston, Metro North, Long Island Railroad in New Jersey Transit in New York, um, and similar systems. Um, it's mainly just the biggest cities that have these. and uh, But other cities are building them, you know, Minneapolis and, and um, some other places are building like commuter railroads in place in Florida and Texas. And, um, but these are, you know, because it's Chicago, it's really dense old city, um, system is very busy. And up until like five years ago, you couldn't bring your bike on at all. You weren't allowed. And so there is a Metro conductor wrote a post on the Chainlink forum um, on bikes. And he's basically saying that, um, well, I'll summarize his, uh, his comment because it, it was pretty long. Um, he's saying that basically this, uh, the bike policy, it's, it's poorly conceived um, and poorly implemented. Most people don't know the policy. Um, and bikes take up space, they make people move, they can create a safety hazard. And then he writes, bikes in general cause the train not to run so smooth because of all the baggage that goes along with it. None of the conductors I know like having them on board, but we are forced to do it because some dopes at the top thought it would be a good idea and forced it on us without really creating a way to make it palatable for us and for you, the rider. <sighs> I don't know where to begin with this. This guy sounds miserable. Um, I don't know if this guy bikes. Uh, he's on the chain link forum. Um, I don't know. I don't want to say he hates bikes, but it seems like he's just, there's something here that he doesn't really seem to understand the value of having bikes on a commuter train. Now, this is not, this is not a new issue, right? Uh, it's the same on all these busy commuter regional railroads, MBTA, SEPTA, Railroad, all these, they, they all have these. A few of them still do not permit bikes ever. Uh, notably the South Shore Line, which is a, a commuter rail that goes into Chicago, but it's run by um, some uh, some agency from Indiana. It goes into Indiana uh, along the Lake Michigan to the east. And um, uh, Mark, which is a commuter agency in uh, in Maryland, um, which actually it runs fairly limited weekday service, only service. Uh, I don't think they have any weekend service. Um, and they don't allow bikes at all. Um, and then there are some others as well. But um, the real problem here is that the ridership is increasing. And of course, as is the number of people traveling with bikes, um, not rocket science here. Everybody knows this. Biking is growing um, as a mode of transportation. I'm going to repeat that. Biking is a mode of transportation. Um, this is not just a hobby where if I can't take my bike, oh, well, I'll go next time. Um, this needs to be accommodated at all times rather than this lazy solution of, okay, I guess if there's a little extra room, fine. You know, you can stick it over in that corner if that's not being used. Um, if this sounds familiar, it's like the same BS that we hear from the cities. But, oh, if there's room for it, we'll put a bike lane in there and, um, but we can't, uh, you know, we can't give up anything that's like, already existing. We can't really change anything. But if there's this little unused space between the cars and the, and the, it's the p- between the parked cars and the moving cars, then okay, we'll put some paint there. But it doesn't really actually make a change. Um, so 
while I appreciate the perspective of the conductor's issues here, um, I, remember we're talking about trains that are by definition infrequent services. Um, this is not the CTA, which is the, the subway system in Chicago, where there's a train every 10 minutes and, okay, if you miss the train, well then, you know, you just allow extra time and you just get the next one. Um, basically, um, if you show up at this, uh, at the metro station, the train might be running every hour or two. Um, if you miss the train, you're completely fucked, basically. Um, and they, according to the policy, you know, they can, you, you take a room in the, uh, in the, in the, what's supposed to be the wheelchair space. Um, and if, if the wheelchair space is needed or if the train becomes too crowded with, uh, non-bicyclists, then, uh, they can kick you off. Um, but getting kicked off at some middle of nowhere station you'd never heard of where there's not, nothing around, it's just like a big parking lot, uh, because this is commuter rail. Uh, it's not just an inconvenience. Um, it can very easily mean ruining your day. Um, could even lose your job if you're, you know, now you're going to be two hours late for work. Uh, how many bosses are going to be okay with that one? Um, you know, more than like once every five years, if, if that. Um, so I have a hard time with this idea that uh, even if they take up more space, a uh, bicyclist is not as important as any other passenger. Um, it's someone with a giant electric wheelchair less important than a small child. Um, what's an equitable way to decide who to kick off the train if we have to make room? Um, but the bottom line is we need to make room. And uh, as somebody who studies transit planning and operations, I've seen and heard about several different ways that we can alleviate capacity problems. Um, and a lot of what this boils down to is that the the leadership here, in, in, in the case of Metra and, and many others, seems to sort of begrudgingly accept the bikes. Okay, we ha- I guess we have to do this. We're forced into it because of political reasons, whatever. And instead of doing what some agencies are, are doing, um, you know, Portland's TriMet is, is one example, uh, Caltrain in San Francisco, in, um, well, it's sort of San Francisco, but it's the California uh, commuter rail between San Jose and San Francisco. Um, the agency in LA, uh, Minneapolis, uh, Denver, and among other places that, that have thought about how bikes can be carried on. And, um, and granted, you know, some of these places don't have as many bikes, but I mean, a place like Portland, they got a lot of bikes over there um, in California. So, um, it's not that this is is not doable. It's just that when you when you say okay, you know, sure you can bring it on if you can find room in this you know little one this one little corner of the car. Um, you know, these are cars with narrow aisles, not a lot of room. Uh, basically, they just never made any kind of solution. They never thought about it, and they never they never said okay, what can we do to make it easier for people to bring bikes on? And you know, does that mean a special bike car? Does that mean hooks? Does it mean you know what does that mean? And um, and no, they said uh, they said, oh, you can bring, uh, you, know, you can bring in. You have to you have to bring it in. You have to put it in. And you have to bring a bungee cord or something to secure it to the to the rack. It's like okay, to the you know the bottom of the seat. And it's like okay, well uh, now this, this conductor here is complaining that people half the people don't show up with a bungee cord. Well, okay, yeah, sure, it makes sense. Like it'd be nice to go check the the rules on the agency's website, but before you bring your bike on. But I mean, if somebody tells you, oh, I, I brought my bike on Metro, like who the fuck thinks you're gonna bring a bungee cord? Like you know, like. Why are you getting mad about the riders or something like that? You know, so it's it's um there's communication issues and there's just the reluctance to generally accommodate bikes is something that I that I see here. Um, so there's there's a bunch of things that I think can be done and and none of this like you know this complaining about bikes doesn't doesn't solve anything. Um, for for one thing, uh, nothing increases capacity more quickly and inexpensively than ripping out a bunch of seats, uh, to create standing room or space for wheelchairs, bikes, large objects, um. Some passengers complain about this because, okay, well, then when there's it's not that crowded, there might be fewer seats. Um, but if you're about seats, you can accommodate almost twice as many people um, in, in uh, you know in a heavy load. So uh, and, and large objects. So um, 
and we need to make room for large objects. You know, uh, one of the best things I saw was in when I was in um, Ann Arbor, I believe it was. Yeah, it was Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, they had a stroller area in the, near the front of the bus, which is just a big area where they just took out a couple of seats, like I think maybe four seats. Um, and it's just this big open area. Um, and I used it to, when I had my folding bike and a couple of bags with me. I used it for that. And um, I saw people using it for strollers. And um, obviously the wheelchairs have a different area. And so um, just accommodating large objects. I've seen a Boston Silver Line that goes to the airport. Um, they have luggage racks where you just put large item. And I, I mean, that's just people are are using public transit as a mode of transportation. They have to carry things and we need to just recognize this and create space for it. Um, yeah. And so, um, designated space, um, is, is one way to, to do that. And, um, you know, with the, with the commuter rail, um, there's nothing wrong with, uh, ripping out a bunch of seats in a car or two and, uh, replacing it with bike racks or just some kind of space for bikes. Um, Boston has a, a few of these and they only run them on certain trains uh, on weekends. You know, they go to um, the beach or to the ski train that they run, but, um, but that should be expanded and every train should have a bike car. And if it's not full of bikes, then uh, people can stand there and it's no big deal. Um, and one thing you could do is you could charge a fare for bikes or large objects um, that might be difficult to enforce. You know, what's a large object um, and what's a reasonable extra fare? Is it a dollar? Is it half the fare, which commuter rail could be, you know, could go up to like $10. I mean, what's reasonable? Um, I don't know of any public regional rail provider that's doing this, but all private intercity and regional carriers, uh, bus carriers and, and Amtrak charge like an extra five to $10 for a bike or oversized luggage. Um, Metro North and Long Island Railroad in New York charge uh, five dollars uh, just for a one-time lifetime permit, and uh, it's not really a fair, but it's sort of just meant to ensure that everybody knows the rules. Um, and obviously, there's equity arguments with any additional fare, you know, um, hardship of certain people to afford it, and that sort of thing. So um, that's something we need to think about. And um, I don't know if that's the solution, but this just it's an idea. Um, the Chicago actually just rolled out a new bike sharing system uh, called Divi. And um, it's the same as City Bike in New York, Hubway in Boston, these other ones that I've talked about before, and uh, and that's that's very exciting. And so one way to one way you can sort of approach it from the angle of uh, decreasing the number of people who need to bring their bikes on the train. You know, we want to make it make it easy and and safe um, for people to do it, but uh, but we want to have it less of it, right? So um, we so put uh, put Divi stations at every major urban metro station. And promote the heck out of it, right? Because make it so that people can hop off the train and grab a bike, and they don't need to bring their own bike. Um, not gonna make it not gonna be available for everyone, but it'll, it'll reduce the number of some people bringing bikes on their train. Um, secure parking, um, so you don't have to bring it with you, just so it doesn't get stolen at the station. Um, you can partner with bus systems to bring combo tickets and passes, so that maybe people can take the bus for free or cheaper easily, or you know, with coordinated schedule, they don't need their bike. Um, you know, you could have, um, if you had uh, off-board fare payment, like uh, Toronto's Go Transit and most North American light rail systems, uh, you wouldn't need conductors to collect fares from every single passenger on every trip, um, which would increase revenue because more people are paying for fear of uh, for fear of being caught at an inspection. And uh, and then you can have more cars open. And, uh, you know, typically commuter rail agencies run these big full trains on weekends and, and off-peak hours, uh, but they only have a few cars open because it's just too difficult to to uh, uncouple and, and recouple all the cars, but it's a lot of extra work to have to staff all the cars. Um, but if you don't, if you had automatic doors and high level platforms, and then you just didn't have 
um, you didn't have to collect fares on every trip. You could just, it was just like the occasional inspection. Then, you know, you wouldn't need conductors to constantly be in every car. And then, you know, you, you could open, just open more cars and it wouldn't be a big deal. Um, then you could essentially carry unlimited bikes that way. Um, so what else? Yeah. And just, I mean, just making an effort really. It's like, uh, there's a lot of things that are, that are very bike unfriendly. There's, um, you know, Metro has these blackout dates where they, uh, you know, certain dates where there's a festival or, you know, holiday, whatever they, they just say, Oh, you can't bring bikes today. And, uh, sometimes they don't publicize it very well. And, uh, you know, and it's just sort of like, it, it, it's sort of, I mean, that's one thing for, if you're just going out for a joy ride and like, okay, uh, that sucks, but you know, you just go a different day. But, you know, like I said, it's a mode of transportation. A lot of people are using this. This is commuter rail, right? It's going to these suburban places where there's no other transit often. Um, so you, you know, and, and the stations are often not conveniently located, so you may need that bike to ride three or four miles from the station, and there may be no other way to get to your job. And, uh, you know, so just telling people, oh, you can't bring your bike today, I mean, that's not, that's not fair. Um, so, yeah, if you, have, if you have feedback about carrying your bikes on transit, I'd love to, to hear from you. Um, you. You basically need to make rules that make sense and tell your passengers and provide any tools that you need. If you need, you know, you can't get mad at bicyclists for not carrying a bungee cord because that's a ridiculous requirement that shared by no other transit agency and, uh, you know, no passenger is going to think of that. So just provide the bungee cords. Um, and just generally just stop viewing passengers and their stuff as annoyances. Um, there's so many large transit agencies seem to regard their role as dealing with passengers instead of helping them move from A to B. Um, and think more about how can we help people traveling with bikes instead of how, how do we handle all these damn bikes so that nobody gets hurt? Um, obviously we don't want to make it hurt, but we want to make it easy for everyone. Everybody wants to work together here. Um, and if all else fails, just make bike shuttles. Um, you know, if there's a uh, certain places where bikes can't be accommodated, well then just, you know, either extra bike car or just, uh, or just run, uh, you know, run a bus shuttle. Um, certain places, you know, California has this in Barton, San Francisco, where they don't allow bikes in rush hour. The transportation department runs this bike shuttle. It's just a van with a trailer full of bikes and uh, it goes over the bridge and you can, um, and it's, it's obviously far from perfect. It gets stuck in traffic, which is capacity. It runs infrequently, whatever, but at least it exists and it should be expanded and replicated everywhere. Um, maybe it doesn't impact Chicago so much, but it uh, means a lot in places like New York, Boston, uh, Washington, San Francisco, other places where there's uh, where there are, you know, significant distances that can't be biked like water bodies or, or uh, suburbia or whatever um, that it means a lot. Um, so that's what I got to say about Metro on bikes. And, uh, if you have any thoughts, please share. And I will try to put a link to the, uh, chain link forum and you can, you can see that post and comment for yourself if you like. Um, next item, uh, Bill Lindeke of, uh, Minneapolis fame. He, uh, he blogs at streets.mn and, uh, Twin City Sidewalks. And he writes, uh, before I die, I want to get out of the Skyway. Um, so that's, yeah, he was, he was, uh, commenting on somebody's post about the, um, the Skyway system in Minneapolis. Uh, there are other cities that have this. Uh, Toronto has one. Chicago has one. I, I know some others um, where it's basically just uh, an enclosed either um, either underground or um, second level with like overpasses and things. Uh, basically a way to walk through the downtown area without going outside, um, which is viewed by people as, as great in the winter. Um, but what it does is it takes away a lot of street life. And uh, so especially in a place like St. Paul, Minnesota, where, where this is uh, being talked about, um, it removes people from the street and, uh, you know, it, it diminishes street life and, uh, and it, you know, when you're walking in it, they do feel like a sterile shopping mall in a way. And so it's sort of, it's nice cause it's air conditioned, but at the same time, it's just, I've had my chair walking through the Minneapolis and just like, get me the hell out of this thing. And, um, somebody put up a poster in one of them, uh, 
as is popping up in a number of places, just like a chalkboard um, with a number of uh, a number of lines that each say, uh, "Before I die, blank." You know, I want to do this, whatever. Um, and so somebody wrote, "I want to get out of the skyway," and thought that was great. Um, now follow Bill on uh, streets that I'm in, and uh, Gary rides bikes on Twitter. Right at Gary rides bikes. Um, his name is Gary. Um, he's a Santa Monica bike advocate and a streets blog LA columnist. And he writes, car alarms should be destroyed, all of them. Just make it stop. A technology that degrades the soundscape of the city for no useful purpose. Um, I agree. And uh, Minku from the Vegan Pedicab uh, posted a response, uh, which is linked to uh, the trailer for the movie Noise. Um, there's a character called the Rectifier. I had not seen this, but apparently this uh, this guy called the Rectifier. Um, just can't stand being woken up and disturbed by car alarms. And every time he hears a car alarm, he just goes in uh, with a baseball bat, just bashes the car, um, and eventually gets arrested. And, you know, he says, Oh, you know, the police never come for when they're, you know, the cars are attacking me and I, I only get, you know, I only get shit for attacking them. Um, so obviously Minku, we don't advocate violence or property damage on this show. Uh, but yes, along with, along with car horns, uh, I totally understand the rage and, uh, it, it needs to stop. Um, car alarms don't even nobody even pays attention to it. It's not like it's not like you're walking down the street and you hear a car alarm and like oh shit like I wonder if I should like go find somebody the person who's uh, who's going this car and like you know and then everybody stops and looks around and you know tries to make sure there's nothing serious going on. No, it's just like makes noise and it just disturbs everyone and uh, people have learned to tolerate it. It's sad. Um, the following the bike NYC Twitter hashtag. Um, there's constant complaints about delivery cyclists, and I'm a little annoyed by this because um, there's, yeah, sure, it's uh, it's annoying that uh, a lot of the delivery cyclists are uh, you know riding the wrong way on the street and and you know um, not riding super respectful, and uh, and they obviously the, the electric bikes I think are a, are a big problem. They're riding these electric bikes, which in many cases they don't even have to pedal, which are basically mopeds, um, and I don't think those should be allowed in bike facilities or. Um, well, I guess they're better than cars, but um, but they should be in car lanes and everything. And um, so a lot of people are complaining about the delivery cyclists, singling out delivery cyclists, and I think there's a little bit of a racism in there um, because most of these people are poor Latino uh, immigrants. And, uh, yeah, and I think that's... But the, but the, the bigger point, I think, is um, poorly designed streets. And I've talked about before uh, one-way streets and how one-way streets are terrible for transit and for biking and... Uh, you know, and for walking because they promote fast car traffic and just, just degrade the uh, the quality of the city environment and cause a lot of uh, car circling trips, driving around the block and sort of thing. And um, and obviously uh, euphemistically known as speeding, which is uh, driving way too fast for the conditions and driving recklessly. Um, and so uh, I don't like one-way streets. And a lot of times these bike facilities that have been installed, these great protected bike lanes that New York is putting in, um, are usually one-way facilities. And, uh, and that's a problem because um, the street blocks can be very long and to have to go around the block, especially for a delivery cyclist who is not getting paid a lot, uh, is under a lot of pressure to go and get, uh, you know, a dollar or two tip here and there and get the food there before it's uh, cold and, you know, get complained. Um, so it's very, it's very much uh, important that we think about defects in the street design and not trying to blame individual people so much. Um you know, bikes are tra- they're trying to do what's best and they don't mean ill will. It's like, um, we need to fix the system where, um, instead of having these, 
these one way, you know, we got these one way cycle tracks and they sort of, they made them pretty wide because they were like, oh, well, people are going to bike the wrong way. Well, it's like, well, if people are going to bike the wrong way, why not plan it that way and, you know, signalize it and everything so that people can bike the wrong way. Um, and it'll be the right way. Um, so that's one thing that really annoyed me and I, I wanted to rant about that for a minute. Um, on Twitter, walking underscore Boston writes, uh, many streets could have lower speed limits. Uh, 15 miles per hour makes sharing the same space easy and natural. Um, and that was in response to my comment that if cities really care about biking, they would stop installing sharrows. Um, I hate sharrows. I, I think they're the worst thing ever. These are the little, that little bike marking that's not a bike lane, but it's just like a bike with like these little, these two little arrows pointing in the, you know, straight ahead. Like it's, it's, there's controversy over what it's even meant for. Um, and at best it's meant to signify to the bicyclist that, you know, this is the safe place to ride, you know, don't ride in the door zone, ride over here, or, you know, don't get caught to the right of right turning traffic, ride over here in the straight through lane, that that kind of thing. Um, but in many cases it's just, it's sort of used as this idea that, Oh, we're going to put it down here. Um, because we want to remind drivers that bikes belong on the road. Well, Okay, the bikes only belong on the road where there are sharrows. Um, why do we need to remind drivers that bikes belong on the road? Um, that's ridiculous. And and also, um, why are we installing sharrows and not actual safe space for bicyclists, which is what bicyclists want and need to feel safe? Uh, bicyclists are looking for bike lanes, uh, you know, and and protected protected bike lanes and that sort of thing. Um, and they're not, or, or, you know, at least in the very least, you know, slowing traffic, um, prohibiting dangerous turns, uh, enforcement of traffic laws, that sort of thing. We're not, we're not, um, you know, we've, we talked about all these, these ideas that we're just, you know, we're just kind of fiddling at the margins, right? How, how we're not really advocating for what we really need. We're just like, okay, yeah, sure. We'll take a, we'll take a bike lane. Okay. Well, if there's no room for a bike lane, we'll put in sharas. And I've said this before, you know, what does that mean that there's no room for, bike lanes. It means there's always room for whatever you want. It just means that priority is being given to cars in some way or another, right? Um, whether it's parked cars or, um, if you have a, you know, if you have a two lane road and you don't want to, and you know, you, you say, Oh, there's no room for the bike lane. Well, that means that, you know, you, you refuse to make a change to the status quo. You refuse to change the car space. So with that being said, you can't also fit in bike infrastructure. Um, well, just say that. You know, don't beat around the bush. Like, oh, well, you know, we wish we could accommodate bicycling. Bullshit, you do not because you're not accommodating it. You're just saying, oh, well, we don't care. And putting in sharrows, what is that? It doesn't really change anything. It doesn't, I mean, I've, I have not seen sharrows be effective in actually showing people where to ride um, because there are sharrows, people still ride to the right. And then, you know, if there's a, a parking lane and then there's sharrows to the left of the parking lane, well, when there's no parked cars, then what? Are you supposed to ride on the sharrows and then are you supposed to ride to the parking lane? What are you supposed to do? You know, it's, it's just, they're just ridiculous. Just, uh, get rid of them. Um, uh, on Twitter, strong towns, which is, a an awesome blog, uh, started up by, uh, Chuck Marone, a recovering traffic engineer, as he calls himself. Um, Strong Towns, uh, but, but this may not actually be him. Um, Strong Towns writes, uh, market downgrading toll road company for lack of drivers uh, and that we should consider the implications for cities. Um, the implications that U.S. cities have a business model based on growth in auto trips um, and that model should be downgraded. Um, this shows what we know, that uh, drivers want unlimited roads but don't want to pay for them. 
there is uh, the backstory to this is there are a few uh, toll roads in, I believe Indiana is one case study where they, uh, where the state basically sold the the rights to the road um, to this private company that's collecting tolls and, and, you know, providing maintenance and whatever. So it's, and it's, um, and now they're saying that, that they're the, the market, I guess, is downgrading the, um, the company that, that owns the road because, uh, it's not bringing in the profits that were expected, I guess. And, um, and this is something that we all know. I mean, anytime there's a, anytime that, like in Boston, we went through this battle. There's, um, this, there's the mass turnpike, which is a big interstate highway that runs kind of through the downtown and, and right into the South station to the hub of the city. And, uh, and then there's this, there's other road. It's like a parkway, you know, it's four lane parkway, um, that goes right along the water and, um, and sees heavy traffic. Um, and they base, they're pretty much like five blocks away from each other. And I've always said that the only, only reason that most people are using that parkway is because it's free. Whereas the turnpike is a toll road and they have to pay like a dollar 25 or something. So, um, and that's, that's proven itself in, in many, many places. So, uh, this is something that. I think we're going to see over and over again as more and more cities are looking for these, you know, public private partnerships, they're not going to work out because people are not supporting them. So maybe we need to, uh, you know, if they don't want to pay for this, maybe we need to just get rid of the roads, just start closing the roads because good cities thrive without cars and especially without highways. Um, on Twitter, um, I don't know how to say this. So H A N B Z U, um, writes, uh, in response to bike Portland suggesting the point of cycling is not to fight the car. He writes, what's the point of more cycling if not for reducing car use? Uh, cycling will not reduce car use unless convenience of cars is progressively diminished. No policy will work without managing car traffic. Um, yeah, I agree. This is, um, you know, time to get break out the sticks. So we've been, uh, and trying to do these carrots so long, you know, this transportation cheerleading, as people call it. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, get on a bike. It's fun, it's healthy, and whatever. Um, But if we're not making it more difficult to use cars, then, um, you know, people are going to keep using cars. Um, We have to start charging people and, uh, you know, restricting traffic. And uh, I believe it was Stockholm where they they implemented a uh, congestion pricing scheme where, you know, to enter the central business district, you had to pay. It was like $10 or something. And uh, the traffic went down like 30% pretty much overnight. And um, now everywhere there was a traffic jam, there's not. Um, they were able to take a lot of space and, you know, give it over to pedestrians and bikes and buses and other sustainable uses. And, uh, you know, emergency vehicle times are down and it's just been a great success. Um, but until we stand up and say, look, this is car use is a problem and we're going to put up some barriers to it, you know, we're not going to get anywhere. Um Copenhagenize, uh, which is Michael, Michael Anderson, who writes a lot about uh, Copenhagen uh, Dutch-style bike infrastructure um, and its applicability to the rest of the world. Um, he writes, the number of people posing with helmet in social media profile pictures underlines the fact that it's a subcultural symbol more than anything else. Um, and this is because you, if you, I don't have, to, I mean, anybody who's read, ever, ever read a bike magazine knows that, you know, half the time you open up the you know, into page two where they have the letters to the editor and half the, half the letters are, Oh, you advertise this product, but the person didn't have a helmet on who gives a fuck. Like, I mean, you just, you get attacked if you don't have a helmet. So that's why people do that. Um, it's ridiculous. I know, but I'm not going to rant about helmets now. Um, I'm done with that. Um, Boston rail fan and the T adventure. Um, because the, the rail, the subway in Boston is known as the T. Um, wrote about uh, double-deckers, uh, double-decker buses, I mean. And uh, and I replied that there are pros and cons to double-deckers and articulated buses. 
Um, the primary issue for both types is a concern in Boston. Um, and this is um, double-deckers uh, can't be used where there are low overpasses, um, which Boston has a lot of uh, because it's an older city. And uh, articulated buses um, don't do very well in the snow. Um, this is something that I don't know if it's only Boston that's had this problem because I see articulated buses in other places like Denver and Chicago and uh, Minneapolis and <laughs> Toronto and other places that have, uh, you know, that have snow. Um, so I don't know if this is just something going on in Boston, but um, but that's certainly an issue. And uh, so those are the main the main issues for for both types. And um, articulated buses can be uh, better. They take up more curb space, but they um, but they're faster at loading and unloading. So much better for dwell time uh, if you have multiple doors. Um, the biggest failure I've seen is in uh, places where they that get articulated buses so they can carry more people, but they still only have two doors. Um, or they have, even if they have multiple doors, they, they still have, uh, you know, have you have to pay at the front door, um, which just sort of defeats the point of, uh, of having multiple doors. Um, but the best uh, the best I've seen so far is uh, is in, well, I think in, uh, I think it was in Oakland, California where they had uh, they had three doors on a on a standard forty foot bus and four doors on an articulated bus, uh, and in Europe that's that's common. Um, in Denver they have these forty foot buses that run on the Sixteenth Street Mall. It's a free mall shuttle, um, and they have four doors on a what appears to be a forty foot bus. Um, it's a very weird, oddly styled bus, um, and I'll talk more about that when I when I write about Denver um, or podcast about it. And uh, so yeah. Um, they have more doors, whereas uh, articulated, bu- I mean, uh, double-decker buses are, are better for longer journeys, like uh, express trips. Uh, Go Transit uses a whole lot of them in, in the Toronto area, and um, and some intercity, well, at least at least one intercity bus carrier is starting to use them. Uh, Megabus has been using them for a while. Um, when you have space for luggage in the back, on the, in the back of the first floor, you really only get about twenty extra seats by having the second floor. Um, but for a low-cost bus carrier, I guess that's a big deal. And uh, for somebody like Go Transit, like you don't really need all that luggage space, um, and you have bike racks on the front, so um, you can carry a lot more people, and it just becomes more efficient. You know, you get to run, um, you essentially get to carry more people without running more service, um, which is great. And uh, what else? Oh, um, I think that's it for the feedback that I wanted to get to today. Um, I hope that's enough, and I would love to hear from you. Um, what kind of feedback that, that you have and, um, upcoming, I have a number of guest suggestions that I'm uh, trying to get on the show. I have a show coming up on, uh, the open streets in Minneapolis. We're going to be talking about that. I want to talk about fair policy and collection because that's something that comes up often and I wanted to make that a, um, big thing. And I did have a question from a listener that I didn't get to yet. Um, wants to know more about the transit scheduling process. How does it work? How do you, how do you schedule bus routes? Um, and so I can I can talk about that in some detail. Visit the website, criticaltransit.com. Send feedback to feedback at criticaltransit.com, or you can find the contact form on the website. Um, you can tweet me at criticaltransit. You can find me on Facebook at criticaltransit. And uh, that's those are ways of getting in touch, I guess. Um, share your thoughts. I want to hear from you. 